We're in Beirut for a new episode of the Beirut Banyan, and we're joined by Zena Saab. Zena is the founder and director of Noaya and co-founder at SC Factory. We discuss her book project, We Were There, a book about the Beirut explosion, and reflect on the pursuit of poetic justice through preserving and honoring collective memory. Our conversation includes the wider role of civil society in the aftermath of the port blast grassroots-led movements seeking political power, and real inspiration at a time of tragedy and prolonged uncertainty. This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners and viewers like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, the handle, The Beirut Banyan. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to stay updated with video releases, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and thanks for watching. I'm Rani Shatar, and this is The Beirut Banyan. chance to catch up with you is a real treat (laughs) for a few reasons. Uh, The first is that we've known each other for quite some time. And I've had the good fortune of having your words shared on the podcast before. Uh, This was during the protests. And if I remember, I think it was in November. So just weeks into the protest movement. And we were reflecting together in Beirut Digital District at night. And the protests were still happening just down the street. Fast forward a year and a half later, so many things have happened. Um, So many turns for the worse, yet the commitment remains. And I find that worth celebrating. And the reason I'm starting this way is because I try to remember the exact day. It may have been just 24 hours earlier, prior to October 17, prior to the protests, Within hours, I was with you, with several friends at Anis and Madam Khayr, talking about things collapsing and this, this real fear that things were taking a turn and they were really getting bad. And this is before all that's happened the last 18 months. But even in that conversation, there was no hesitation at giving up, at letting go, at taking off and departing. That never came up. So that's inspiration right there. And let's start there. Going back to the initial feeling of positivity on October 17, of euphoria on the 18th and 19th, and all that we witnessed in the early stages of the protest movement and right now. Am I guessing right that it doesn't matter how bad things get, that you're committed to the end? Or is there a red line for you? And I mean this in the most honest way, that do you have your own limits at what you can take? Because I think all of us are suffering so much. And most of us, I think, suffer in silence, not in social media. And for that reason, I'd like to sort of gauge your mind there. You're not very visible on social media. You don't Mm. express that much emotion on social media. You're fairly quiet when it comes to Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So now I can ask you directly, Do you have your own limit 
or is it just the case that there's no limit for you that you're sticking around and the commitment is there despite all the agony you describe it so well how there was so much positivity and euphoria back in October 2019 and I don't quite remember what I said back then but I could almost bet that I said something about me just having this unconditional love for this country that you just I just I can't express or explain why and where it comes from. I was raised in the US and I just developed such a strong attachment and commitment to this country. And I vowed to come back one day and serve this country in the best way I could. And so I did that after graduating from my, with my master's in 2008, 2009. And I came back here and I've been here basically ever since. Um, I left for a year to go to New York, but generally I've been here um, consecutively since 2011. Um, and I have had no regrets for being here. Um, it, we've gone through so many um, ups and downs in this country. And I feel like I, I want to dedicate my life to, to being here and to serving the community in the best way I can, because this is what fulfills me. Um, from, from that aspect, but also as many of us as possible are needed here at this time. And I remember during the, after the photo, not after, we're still in it, but months after it kind of died down, I remember hearing somebody on the radio talking about how the photo will, will come back and saying how, yes, things will get worse, but we need everyone who can to stay in Lebanon. Everyone who is able to stay, we need you to stay. And everyone who cannot stay, we don't blame you. You have, you know, so many issues you need to think about. If you can't survive here, if you can't have a, a certain standard of living, if you're suffering so much, don't stay. It won't benefit anybody to stay. So I think that's where I'm at now. I am, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be, you know, running my own NGO and social enterprise, and I'm able to receive, uh, um, you know, um, whatever I need to, to live a comfortable life here, thankfully. And I'm always so grateful for that and feel so blessed. And as long as I'm able to live a, in a certain way here, despite the country collapsing, I'm still able to give back to people in need. And that's what I do every single day with Nawaya, with SE Factory, and with people that I come across who are in need of support. We need to come together to support each other during this very critical time. And so that's what's keeping me here. As long as my basic needs are met, and as long as I feel like I am able to contribute to this country in a positive way, and as long as it stays, it's still safe to be here, and I'm not losing my mind mentally, psychologically, emotionally. Now, I can't tell you, I can't say that I haven't actually after this year and a half, I've had such, such difficult, difficult moments like so many other people. Um, but my commitment to this country has not wavered. It's actually been strengthened despite everything. This level of strength I find it to be rather unique because I think among our own common friends and mutual friends, too many of them have departed. And I fully agree with your sentiment. 
that if you're able to stay and contribute, you should, but you don't blame people for leaving as well. And this takes me back, I think, to a very profound conversation we had. You were leaving Lebanon, and I think it's 2010 or 11. You were on your way out to pursue, if I'm not mistaken, I'm trying to remember this correctly, a master's at MIT. I hope I remember this correctly. It was a, you were heading to Boston, if I remember this right. In 2000, uh, in 2006, uh, 2000. yeah, 2006 to 2006. 2006. So this is really, my, really good memory. <laughs> such good memory that it could be 15 years ago, 20 years ago at this point. My, my, my years are off. But I remember okay. that conversation. There was no hesitation at thinking of coming back, even then. And I think every conversation we've had in Beirut, if you're leaving, you're on your way back already. And both of wow. us have been kind, yeah. of, kind of in and out the whole time. So true. And I'll add to that. I think we are in that stage that you described, those lines. I think we cross them without really appreciating that we keep pushing the lines. And I have a sense, I could be wrong, that we're stuck here for better or worse, no matter how bad things get. I could be wrong on this front, but I think both of us, and I know you in particular, you will not really give up until it's really the last stretch and I, I don't think we're there but no. that said I think I'll still see you at that last stretch I have a feeling <laughs> the reason I'm saying this in a, in a very honest way a blunt way is because you are the perfect person to do collective memory when it comes to the blast and the reason I say you is because you're on the ground you've ha- you have your own NGO we'll, we'll get into that today you have a passion for storytelling and you're the right person to find a team that can collaborate on a very big effort. And the moment I saw this being shared online, I was like, yes, Zena is the right person to do this. And I'll say it up front. I'm very glad that you've raised the minimum threshold, which I think was at $15,000. You've already crossed that, which is, which is great. And I'm going to title the book up front. We Were There, a book about the Beirut explosion And the byline is true stories of survival, strength, and solidarity in the aftermath of the August 2020 explosion. And I think, I think at the core of this project, and you you mentioned this in in a way, despite no justice, this is a Mm -hmm. form of two things, poetic justice and resistance. And you use that word resistance in the description. So if you don't mind, let's go there. What do you mean exactly by that resistance? Because I've heard that word used for efforts like this been applied to me as well. And I never thought of myself in that camp per se, but I guess I'll own it. Yeah, this is a form of resistance. And there is an attempt at making sure that these stories do not go unheard later. But what does it mean to you when it comes to that kind of justice and resistance? Is there a more than just the lexicon? Does it have a deeper meaning to you? Or is it simply that you don't want these stories to fade, period? And this is a way of capturing it. So maybe the ethos of this project. Sure. Um, I mean, when I first thought of this idea, it was it came from a place where, you know, we were in such a, a dark, 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 tragic tunnel. And I never expected to, you know, hear about these other stories of, you know, I mean, we saw it around us, the solidarity and the support. And it was so overwhelming how people came together in no time thousands of people are on the streets supporting each other. And that was remarkable given how broken we were. Um, And so I felt like maybe on a personal level, I needed 
to find those stories, mm. to realize that, you know, something else existed with this tragedy. Something else grew from this tragedy. Nothing positive grew from this tragedy. Everything destructive and horrendous and, um, you know, um, devastating happened with this tragedy. We all wish it never occurred, but it did happen. And so what existed in parallel with this tragedy? It's people who refused to give up. It's people who came together, regardless of religion, politics, socioeconomic backgrounds, geographic locations. People ran to support each other without asking any questions. And that is remarkable and that is beautiful and that needs to be recognized and remembered. In terms of resistance, I can tell you a couple reasons. One is, yes, we refuse to forget. Mm. We will never forget what happened. And even if we're going to fight for years for justice, this book is a contribution towards that so that people can remember what happened. And so we don't bury it in the ground the way we did with the Civil War, where we don't come to terms with what happened and we don't talk about it enough. Um, This needs to be a conversation that happens in households in Lebanon and beyond. And the stories are, in my opinion, so important to be shared because they each story is a lesson for us. You know, there's a story about a young man from Maram Khayil connecting with a young man from Khanda El Ghami and coming together because of the explosion. Like that's, that's extremely important for us to dive into and understand both perspectives and how this tragedy brought people together from different you know, neighborhoods um, and what that means to build a community and to build a country moving forward. There are stories about domestic workers abandoned by the government and by their employers and of Lebanese rushing to their support This is the Lebanon we want to build together, a a country that's based on human rights and respect for everybody, regardless of your nationality or your skin color. You know, that's the resistance. Um, So you can dive deep and deeper um, about why this book is important. Someone, um, a friend of mine, when she was sharing the post on Facebook said that this is so important because with the civil war, we never had a book like, like, well, I don't know. I can't really say that because I don't really know. But do we know of a book uh, collecting people's experiences from the Civil War? Maybe there is something like that. But the point is we need to have this um, in our collective memory so that it's not brushed away and, and forgotten so that we, we hold it as a tool of resistance to continue to fight for justice and for all the people whose lives were lost and the destruction and devastation that we all experienced. Two weeks ago, when we were scheduling this, it occurred to me that we'd be speaking on 13th of April, the anniversary yes. of the Civil War. And I spent the day going through videos, articles, things that capture that day, whether it's infamous scenes, whether it's well-known stories, the Aynet Amenit bus or whatever, everything that we associate with the Civil War on April 13th. And you're just mentioning it right now, that this is an attempt in a way at healing previous wounds as well. And that you're describing a situation where you're right. It isn't easy to, in a way, access those stories. You have to make an effort. I've gotten to know Monica Bergman well, Lukman mm-hmm. Slim, the 
his wife mm-hmm. who, who runs Umam. And they do that. Actually, I think that's all they do is document war tragedy and make it accessible. But it's a painful journey. Yeah. You're also addressing something else, which I think it resonated with me. And I think it resonated with most people who are in tune with the development of events in this country. Almost everything got worse with the exception of civil society, that civil Mm -hmm. society shined and Mm -hmm. it shined on, on August 4th. It shined in the days after I wasn't in Beirut, but that's all I was doing was watching footage of volunteers established NGOs, or literally people just going to Jamezi, Maram Khair, to Ashrafi, to downtown, wherever the blast impacted, and helping. And absence of any state support, there was real, real resistance on the ground. These were citizens taking part. And I think I owe this, we should all owe this in part to the civil society playing a large, large role in post-Civil War, post-Civil War survivability. I think. And you're, you're in that world too. So I think it almost makes sense that someone from this sector would be the one at least trying to document as many stories as possible. And actually, there's a question that you ask in the description. So I'll take liberty here. I'll quote you to you with a question. Will history tell the many stories of our trauma, our pain, and our deep personal losses? So aside from the brave and you mentioned, you mentioned several stories. Somebody from Akkar who makes his way to Beirut and sleeps in Madam Khair and Jamezi only to help. A Palestinian, I think it was civil defense. Civil defense. Yes, civil yes. defense, yes. Who's in a way discriminated by default, who makes sure that he can help. Yeah. Those are the, I guess that's the, that's an attempt at healing wounds, but... And I, I'm sorry to be a bit sort of brash here. Is that all we can expect from the aftermath of the blast when looking back and at least preserving these memories that these were individual attempts? This was civil society shining. But the longer we head and the maybe more time we have to reflect that this is a marker for collapse and that we saw the state really just crumble. And it's really the aftermath of the blast that we've been talking, we've been using language that we didn't use before, that the state, it, it's failed, that Lebanon mm-hmm. is over, that, that extreme terminology, do you sense that that is real and that this book may in a way capture the healing of certain wounds, but the state is no longer with us, the state is gone. And as much as you can say on that, because I know it's a big question, it's a loaded question, and I, I'm not trying to discredit anything here, but more in terms mm. of looking back on this chapter, that it's not the beginning of a civil war. It's the end of Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the end of Lebanon as we know, as we've known it. But the Lebanon that we've known, was it really the, the ideal country that we really, I mean, <laughs> I, I love this country, but I have a lot of criticism mm. about how it, you know, the sectarianism and the lack of human rights of Palestinians and Syrians. And, you know, it, we can go deeper and deeper. And the, obviously there's, there's a lot to love about this country and admire in its people, but the systems need to go. So we've, we've been living in a country before this collapse that was um, 
on very, very, very shaky, rotting foundations. That is not the way to build a prosperous country. It was all fake. It was just a shiny facade. And if you just, you know, go a little bit deeper, it's all rotten. Maybe it needs to collapse so that we can build something stronger. And I remember in the last podcast in October, 2019, or, or was it 2020, uh, sorry, November, 2019, I had said, things probably have to get really, really bad for people to wake up and realize that they need to change the way they've been voting, the way they've been supporting these political parties. They need to wake up, but they won't wake up until you know, life as they knew it ceases, ceases to, to be. And that's where so many people, that's what so many people are experiencing now. Unfortunately, they're going through so much pain and so much suffering. And this is what causes so much anguish seeing so many families and people really going through um, this uh, during this stage and knowing that help is not on its way because they're taking their time. They're taking their precious time, these, these politicians. So yes, if it needs to collapse for us to build something better, then maybe this is what we need to um, accept. As long as we build something better, that's what we need to work towards. I remember, you remember base camp in Maram Khayil. That was like called the mini government. It, within, yes. within, within no time, you had a health center and a, ther ther a psychology center, mental health center and relief. Yep. And they were working well together, coordinating between different entities. And I have no doubt that the people running base camp would be incredible leaders of this country one day. And that's, and, and the people who built these NGOs after August 4th or grew existing initiatives into NGOs um, after August 4th, these are the future leaders of this country and they are mobilizing and they are passionate and they're dedicated and they're gaining important experience and skills during these, this relief and reconstruction efforts. It's inevitable, I think, for a lot of these people, these young leaders, to actually transition potentially from NGO work to potentially politics. We need those types of um, individuals to step up and, and, and put themselves forward to, to lead this country. I'm glad you're saying this because I was afraid of bringing this subject up. And I'm, I'm glad you're, you're willing to discuss something that, that I, I asked regularly on this podcast. I've had the good fortune of speaking with most heavily involved activists from Mintashreen. I'm just next door to base camp. I walk by it every day. This is remarkable work even now with the lockdown, with, with all the sort of pain and agony. They're still there volunteering every single day, yeah. which, is, which is really remarkable. But the question of political power, um, a few weeks ago, I spoke to Jaber Dumit, who I think has mm. now, in a way, he's a, a matured sort of civil society activist. He's gone gray. We spoke about the early years as if we're dinosaurs at this point. But he, he made that point clear that there has to be some shift. And there, there were previous attempts. They didn't really gain traction. Do you think this time around it's going to happen? that the momentum is there, whether it's upcoming elections or whether it's just persuasion, that civil society's moment is coming, not in terms of volunteering, but in terms of actual politics. And, and do you see that this has, that is in a way, a maybe a byproduct as well of August 4, 
that there's no patience anymore, that the willingness is there and, and there is momentum. I'll tell you, I've had some very low moments over the past year, you know, um, mm. when I've, I've been searching and hoping that, you know, a collective front, an opposition really, you know, builds its base and we start hearing of candidates. And I feel like it's now I've heard that it's slowly coming together. Mm. Um, but regardless, whether we get a handful of, of um MPs in the next election or more than that, society has been awakened. And right. someone once told me that once you've been awakened, you can't unsee or you can't un unexperience what you've seen mm -hmm. or what you've, you know, and, and, and he was talking about, you know, the people who, who suddenly just mobilized and woke up in October, 2019, who were never part of a movement like this, and, and right. finally, you know, just said enough is enough. And they saw people from all walks of life and different backgrounds and religions and the, the beauty that, that manifested um, itself out of uh, October 17th um, revolution is something remarkable and beautiful. And when you see people coming together in that way and you see the hope and you see the potential and you see the ideas and the beautiful discussions that were held in the public spaces and, and what people did out of the public spaces and the arts and the music and the, you know, we, we realized how much is missing from this country because there's so much fragmentation and so much division. So that experience on its own, where people were finally able to connect um, in, in beautiful ways and express mm. themselves in beautiful ways, that needs to be preserved and remembered. And I think that's part of the enlightenment that so many of us experienced. And we want that again. Um, we walk down uh, Riyadh al-Sulah now. You remember how it was during the Thawra? Sure. Bustling yeah. and full yeah. of, it was like a public space that we reclaimed. And now it's, you know, what it is now that's yeah. one point um another point is actually in the book i wanted to show that after august 4th i i, I don't I, I would love to believe that what happened was not in vain yeah. now it's not my job to tell people to feel hopeful it's not and that's not the purpose of this book but I did feel that it was important to add a chapter about how the explosion potentially mobilized university students to be more engaged in their elections. So sneak peek, there's, there's a chapter about the USG elections and how students were so infuriated and heartbroken and angry and frustrated about how August 4th happened um, obviously symbol of corruption and everything in between, they're like, you know what? Enough with this. We're going to mobilize and we're going to express our frustration and our anger into long-term change. We're going to get more active in university elections. We've never been active in them before, but now is the time. And look what happened. A bunch of independents won. I think maybe all of them won. Um, and, and that is in the book. People can choose to interpret it the way they want, but it's in the book and I hope people feel inspired to realize that if we, if, we, if we do things properly, 
change can happen. Even it's not going to happen overnight. And we need to accept that it might not happen next year with the elections. But if, if we're gradually changing mindsets and having discussions and university elections are turning out independents like never before, and the Naebe is getting an independent, you know, head, that's huge for Lebanon. So I, I, if I hear it right, it's acknowledging that things are really, really difficult and also equally acknowledging that there has been massive progress and the progress, you have to find it. And it's in whether it's these secular clubs that are winning. I think LAU, Jbeil campus had a similar experience. It's, so you have to, in a way, pay attention to the change. It may not be so visible, but it's happening. And also that there have been massive disappointments too. So I, I, in a way, yeah. it's almost calibrating the post-explosion political scene. And I'm, I'm glad you're including that chapter. I, I wanted to ask you, before we go a little deeper into the book, where were you during the blast? Were you, were you in Beirut? Or just if you can take me back to that moment in particular. On August 4th, we were filming for our SE Factory Coding Bootcamp a, a video an inspirational video to, to encourage people um, to hire from our coding graduates from around the world and finished uh, filming around 5 p.m. Decided to leave Beirut Digital District and head home to Hamra okay. and just had made it home by around maybe um, six, made it home. And within minutes, you know, it happened. Thankfully, we're so lucky, no injuries. Um, and nothing to talk about in terms of household damages, really, really nothing. So we're very grateful about that, but absolutely destroyed um, emotionally. Just, just destroyed. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's a struggle sometimes. And I do find myself fading at times when it comes to momentum. And I don't really know where to look for inspiration other than people like you, many, many civil society activists, knowing that they're still working against all odds, I think is the kind of motivation individuals need when they feel this kind of paralysis. And I, I felt the same thing. I happened to be in New York, but I was watching it. And wow. I mean, you're not, clearly it's a different experience when you're in Beirut, visibly suffering among many, but I was, I was damaged completely, as we all were. All were. Anyone, anyone has a relationship to Beirut. Being further away, I don't know. I mean, it was devastating in its own way. I don't yeah. know if, uh, if, if you've heard of the documentary um, being made by uh, expats in New York called We Never Left. Oh, yes, 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 yes. yes. I've seen that floated around. Yeah, I've seen yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, your heart remains in Lebanon no matter where you are. Um, that is for a large, I think, a majority of, of people who are, you know, who, who maybe were born here and had to leave or their parents even were born here and, and they were born elsewhere. There's a strong connection amongst a, a big um, um, expat community towards Lebanon. And yeah, I mean, even if you were in New York, goodness, uh, devastating. <laughs> I'll tell you, Zena, I spent a week trying to raise money and I succeeded. 
and actually managed to get a big chunk sent to one place in particular that was heavily damaged. And it felt that this is the only thing you can do when you're abroad is to help financially. It's, it's almost, it's maybe a bit brash to say that, but that was the only thing that was on my mind is trying to help. And thanks to, in a way, thanks to COVID, I think we're all used to it now. It wasn't that hard to kind of get people to engage online. And I think that's yeah. kind of, it's the irony of this happening wow. in the middle of the pandemic and we're all online already. Yeah. So I just yeah. remember, yeah, weeks on end, just just focused on, on this event. And I'll say it again, I'm, I'm glad you're doing this book. It, I think it'll mean a lot to everyone that has any remote connection to Beirut, in particular, those that were in Beirut when it happened. If I can ask you one question about the book, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll quote you to you again. This is the last time I'll quote you to you. <laughs> <laughs> I like doing that whenever I can. And these are your words. I, I realize the importance of recognizing the extraordinary things that ordinary people did and continue to do during this time of tragedy to honor the lives that were lost and those that were left behind in their wake, to come to terms with the very real pain that still haunts us today while being aware of the solidarity and support that emerged during one of the most devastating times of our lives. Is this also a tribute to Beirut? And the reason I ask this in that kind of very big way is because I've been on the news or been reached out to recently following Lukman Slim's assassination. I think I'm the now the second in charge when it comes to, you need a guy to talk about that tragedy. There's a guy who talks about it and they reach out to me regularly. And I said something which meant a lot to me. I don't know if it meant anything to anyone else. It felt like the city was assassinated. This is not a individual that was targeted. It's the city that was targeted. And I felt that it's very hard to have, it's very hard to, have untime, it's very hard to confront untimely or unjust loss on an individual scale, but trying to do that for a city is such a huge task. Is the book that kind of a tribute to a city that also, that we all love and we've seen damaged, heavily damaged in deep pain? And is it an ode in a way to Beirut as well? Beyond, beyond the individual suffering, beyond the stories that are captured? Are you trying to also pay tribute to a city that you love? Or am I reading way too much into this? This is all in my mind only. No, it's for sure um, the city that was, you know, fully, fully um, devastated by this. We, we are all a part of this capital um, and, and we have memories and, and, and you, you know, I mean, it's like our identity was destroyed with yeah. this. Yeah. It was an attack on us. Um, if you can't, if you can't live um, comfortably and in peace in your own home, yeah. exactly. what does that do to you and your psyche living in the city? Yeah. You know, I mean, we were in the middle of a pandemic. People were home. They thought they were safe. And yet they were killed in their homes. That is just unbelievable. Um, at the very end of the video on the campaign, I say, may our beloved Beirut one day find truth and justice. And so I had written this out, the script for the video, and I had some people take a look at it. And um, somebody had said, 
Maybe it should say, may our beloved Lebanon one day find truth and justice. And for sure, I would love for the country to, to find truth and justice. But this was about Beirut. Mm, yes. This was about Beirut. And the book is about the people of Beirut, even if they came from the North or the South to support, but this happened in Beirut and we need to recognize that it is, it is, it was a, an attack on our capital and the people emerged to support the people of Beirut. Um, the, the, Hassan from Akkad didn't need to come to Beirut. He doesn't know anyone in Beirut. Right, That's right, why right. he slept on the streets. Yes. He, he barely had anything with him to, you know, help him survive those days. But he insisted on being here because he was so compelled to jump to action to support his capital city, uh, even if he didn't know it very well. Right. I, I, I like that you've, you know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this sort of editing decision to focus on Beirut. It's almost like the October 17 uprising was a Lebanese moment, but the August 4 explosion is a Beirut experience. Yeah. And they live in each other in a way. It's a yeah. it's a Beirut component to that to that chapter. It's true. Justice for Beirut is justice for Lebanon. Right. Obviously, we're not right. separate. We're all together in this. Yeah. But it means that if you have if you finally have justice for this, that means something huge for Lebanon. Right. Exactly. I I, I couldn't say it better than that. Well well said. I'm glad you mentioned this. Uh, I would never know that there's that kind of background decision making in the video. Yeah because it comes yeah. out very naturally. And I'm going to emphasize this, that even though it's reached the $15,000 threshold, I'll quote you to you one last time, the more we raise, the more books we can print and sell, and the more we can make sure history is honestly written and the stories of August 4, 2020 are never forgotten. So it doesn't mean that the threshold is the limit. You can keep donating. I'd like to ask you about Novaya. And the reason I'm bringing this up at the end is because I think it's... In a way, it's not, it's not a background story. On the contrary, that's kind of how I think of you, even though I've known you before, Nawaya, but I associate you with this NGO that you started. You started, if I, I hope I remember this right, was it 2012? Is it very, yeah, true. I mean, yeah, yeah, we launched in 2012. Wow, very good. It's not bad, huh? Days. It's not bad. I was a proud, <laughs> proud um, uh, contributor at Bread Republic at some event that was taking place awesome. at, at the early stages of Nawaya, yeah. very early. Thank you for, for your support back then. And now, uh, I mean, 10 years later, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, Happy I'm sure I thanked you 10 years ago. Well, I don't actually, maybe I don't even know if I mentioned I it. I hope it may have just been, I did it without, I, I apologize <laughs> for picking it up nine years later, but that's okay. <laughs> but the reason I'm, I'm going back in time a bit is because I think the ethos, if I can use this word for Noah, is focusing on disadvantaged groups there's a, there's a there's a fairness or at least there's a lack of fairness that's being addressed so i get from you and, and just your your whole experience here that that's where your passion is is creating fairness when it doesn't where it doesn't exist so is that the natural bridge between what you do at noaya and and this book project that you're trying to in a way deliver justice on your terms the way you can as an individual knowing knowing that real justice is simply unavailable and we have to in a way accept it that it's hard to accept i think it actually is the reason why lebanon doesn't work it's that we can't count 
on real justice, whether it's individual crimes or whether it's a court blast. But what we can do is help each other. And we can focus our attention on those that need it the most. And am I getting that right? That that's the, that's the background to what you do, whether it's NGO work or whether it's this book? Yes, I feel though it comes from a desire whenever, whenever I see um, something that needs to be done and I have the skills to be able to do it, I, I would do it. So that's why I started mm-hmm. Nawaya um, years ago when I saw, you know, you have so many talented youth full of potential, but they just can't connect to resources. I thought, okay, maybe I could use my network to connect them. And that's how it started. And it's evolved since then. Same thing with SE Factory. I saw a gap um, in, in, in the way that, you know, youth are prepared for the job market as coders. And so teamed up with my co-founder, Fadi Bizzidi, who also saw that gap in that challenge. And we made it happen because I had certain skills and he had uh, other skills and we made it work. During the Thora, um, I mean, we felt that uh, it's important to bring um, experts and speakers to talk to us about, because we had so many questions about, is it okay? Like, what does it mean if there's like a military takeover? Is that good for Lebanon? Is it not good? How did we get to this economic crisis? You know, we had questions, a group of friends and I. So we started uh, something called Badnan Thur Badnan Arif. And we had beautiful discussions about so many different questions people had. And we would bring these experts and we would have, you know, conversations with them. And that lasted for a few months during the photo. And so similarly, I'm I'm not a lawyer and I'm not good with, you know, judicial law. And there's only so much I can do to support, you know, um, the, the aftermath of August 4th. I went down, I carried a broom. I swept yeah. the glass with everybody, then what? And so I didn't ever plan to start to do this book until you know it just came to me during that conversation. So at Tayyib, where I heard from my friend Angelique the ordeal she went through and how she met the guy sitting next to her who became her, her good friend because he found her purse, right. a complete stranger. And I'm like, wow, that's really incredible. Now you guys are hanging out still after a month. It's not like you just took your purse and then you just bade him farewell? You're still hanging out? Wow, that's really cool. I hope hope that wasn't a condition on returning the purse that you have to hang out with me in exchange (laughs) (laughs) forever. (laughs) Uh, I didn't get that sense. Good, okay. (laughs) I think it was voluntary. Right, right. But, but, you know, I felt like we need to capture these stories. And what's also very interesting is a lot of these people who are contributing their experience to this book have said that they wanted to write about their experience, but they just couldn't, right. they couldn't get themselves to do it. It was too painful. They were trying to move on from, from what happened. And my initiative of collecting these stories really pushed them to sit, reflect, come to terms with what happened, remember what happened and write it all out. And many said it was very therapeutic, it was difficult. It brought, brought back a lot of emotions, but it needed to be you know, done. So that's also, I think, important for people to, to, to just realize that we need to remember what happened because it's, if we forget, it's like we're forgiving. 
the culprits. Right. Right. And we need to always rub it in their face that this is what happened. And we're not going to let this go easily. I feel the same way. That, that dichotomy of if you forget, you forgive. Yeah. I don't think I've ever thought of it exactly in those, in, in that way, in that sort of, but it makes sense that once you forget, you, whether intentionally or not, you begin forgiving. And that's not something you should forgive. Yeah. And I'm really glad this kind of project is born out of someone who's fluent in civil society, obviously, but someone who's also very passionate about Beirut and someone who's here really because you want to be here and you want to give, in a way, you're giving your life for the city. So that in itself means a lot, I think, to anyone who wants to read these stories later or access a very tragic event, but stories of inspiration, stories of, I think, real joy and beauty born out of the pain that we experienced. And I'm, I'm happy to see it's on its way. Again, I'll, I'll title it once more. It's We Were There, a book about the Beirut explosion, true stories of survival, strength, and solidarity in the aftermath of the August 2020 explosion. And anyone listening, the details box, you can donate. It's Indiegogo, I think, if I'm not mistaken. So the link will be included there. I hope I got that right. It's Indiegogo. Yeah. Great. It's, yes. it's something that doesn't come out naturally with me. I have to, have to say it several times. Indiegogo. <laughs> <laughs> I often say. reflect on why did they call it Indiegogo? <laughs> that comes to mind sometimes. <laughs> I can't think of it. I'm sure there's a reason. And it's <laughs> not apparent. But Zena, I, I hope to see you soon on the streets of Beirut. And uh, I appreciate the hard work you do. And again, your, your motivation is, is an inspiration to many, including myself. So thank you. Thank you so much, Ronnie, for having me. I appreciate your, all your support. <laughs> 10 years ago and today. <laughs> Thanks for listening and watching. And a friendly reminder to support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box. Until next time, I'm Ronnie Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>